Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis. <laughs> and I'm Ben Pronk. <laughs> welcome, Ben. And welcome to everyone for this second episode with David Knopf. Yeah. We interviewed David uh, early 2021, February, when he was down at Davis Station as the station leader. Season three, Antarctica. episode three. Season three, epi three, and he talked about the stress and pressure of leading on the ice. But you know what? It wasn't done. It got a whole lot worse from that point. Isn't it funny? You, you couldn't write the stuff, and yet David has written. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's, he's captured the the events in a book um, titled 537 Days of Winter." I was thinking about this. I think even 537 days in an awesome destination would get old. Now, I, I imagine Antarctica does have its awesome moments, but my goodness, 537 days of winter, of that kind of isolation, of the same people, of, you know, and as he says in this interview, it's not all penguins and, and sort of southern lights. It's it's some hard yards and, and a lot of a lot of work. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty arduous, pretty hard. a really close, tight team, naturally... Uh, living in everyone's back pocket, there's not much private space at all, is very communal. They expect to be down there for a year and then Australian Antarctic Division ring them and say, we can't bring you back at the appointed time. Mm. And then it's over to him to manage the consequences of that. Yeah, and we're going to talk to him about that from a personal and a professional, a leadership perspective, um, probably up there with one of the, the hardest things you, you're going to have to do. But wait, there's more. Um, in the midst of that, also get hit with a um, a, a really serious uh, medical emergency. Um, so now you're talking life and death in the midst of, of this kind of uh, sort of period um, that, that David as a leader has had to deal with. Oh, but wait, there's more. <laughs> then on his way back to Australia, they have a fire on board the vessel that's bringing them back. And he'll talk about that and people's responses uh, when they think it's all over to an incident. Yeah, and look, just in case it sounds like the conversation is going to be all doom and gloom, we're also going to uh, uh, talk to him about some of the highlights and some of the the incredible experiences um, and unique experiences that you you literally could not get anywhere else or in any other capacity other than as a, a member of an Antarctic division, uh, an Antarctic expedition. Well, let's hear it from David. Let's get on with the show. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Ben Pronk. And I'm Tim Curtis. You are. And uh, today we've got a, well, they're always special episodes, but this one's particularly special because we have an alum. Yes. Um, so we're, we're absolutely stoked to welcome back David Knopf, uh, fresh or relatively fresh from his 537 days of winter and very fresh from the publication of the book of the same name, David G'day. You know, fellas, and uh, it's good to be back this time in a nice, warm, 
well, I'd say studio, I'm in my, my home office, but back in Australia on, uh, on dry land. And we, we were just commenting, um, this is one of those observations that won't work over podcast medium, but you are looking high and tight um, as opposed to when we last saw you where you were, you were looking a, a little more bedraggled, a little shaggier. Unruly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think yeah, you described it as the winter woolies were, were on. Yeah, I think that was probably about day, just shy, I think, day 500 on. We into our second summer, stuck down in Antarctica, and the end was in sight. But uh, there were a few twists and turns still ahead of us that uh, at the time I wasn't aware of. That, uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's fascinating uh, talking to you now and sort of re-listening to that that original podcast because I think, it, like you said, it was around that day 500 of the, the sort of 537 days. Um, and it's really interesting reading the book about all the twists and turns up to that point, some of which we, we touched on last time, but then some of the, the sort of curly ones that you got thrown at uh, even post that point. Absolutely. And it's been a great journey then, like with the years since coming back to then and certainly the book really helped to to relive and and unpack some of the moments along the way and it was it was moments that at the time might have been quite quick and I didn't have enough time to fully appreciate that then sitting down talking to some of the team that were there and and going through it and and putting it down on paper to get the book out and and ready also just to tell our story of what we all went Mm. through and it helped certainly helped me and I know a number of the others have said it it's uh it's a good record of what happened and it's also help them kind of relive it and, and unpack it a bit and understand it. Can, can we talk, I'm really keen to talk about the contents of the book, but I'd be really keen to start by talking about the writing process. Um, we have spoken in different podcasts about our own sort of journey with the, the three of us, and it, it ultimately was a net positive, a really enjoyable experience. Um, my brother Dan, who's, um, I think I can announce this, in the, the process of, of sort of just finalising another book, um, which he'd written very much um, as a kind of, well, in fact, a, a psych told him to, to write it as a part of a catharsis sort of process to, to get stuff out of his head and down on paper. Um, can you reflect on the writing process for you and the team, both in terms of the, the mechanics, but also the, the catharsis and, and that sort of aspect? Yeah, for sure. And hopefully uh, Dr. Dan's book, his, his sequel will be like the 80 kilo dickhead or something. <laughs> um, um, or he's probably kept fitter than I have since he's getting back. Um, no, so it was a, initially I actually got, so Mark Wales, who's another alumni mm. of, of this podcast, I watched an interview with him and his writing coach, um, Kelly from Good Content, Kel, a bit of a plug for her, and, and then got in touch with her and said, hey, you helped Mark do his book. What's the process with putting a book together and this I was still down in Antarctica at the time and mm. daydreaming about what I'd do when I got back and I wasn't fully committed and then once I, got, I remember and to spoiler alert as well when we were standing in the forecastle of the MPB Everest you know five days out of getting back to Australia the nearest land was Heard Island um, with a ship full of smoke and fumes and <laughs> an engine room fire and, and crews going everywhere trying to fight the fire and get the ship going while we're standing by the lifeboats I'm like well that was about day 531 <laughs> Uh, I'm like, all right, I think, I think I've got enough to write a book. <laughs> You've got here. enough material. Yeah, and that was that was a great final chapter to it all. And spoiler yeah, alert, yeah. I do live through. I that. I was going to say, uh, but you didn't light that fire, did you? Just to get no, a I nice didn't. closure. You mm. didn't. <laughs> no, I don't start that room either. Well. I was nowhere near the engine room. I was yeah. having a nap at the time. But um, and then from there, you really have to go through. And, and I, there was that. And I know all veterans and, and I was have that kind of battle between. 
do I become that guy that went and wrote the book or the, the, the value in, okay, this story needs to be told. And, and that was that historical side of it that probably got me over the line to say, you know what, this is a story worth telling. And I wrote it in the first instance for myself. Um, I spoke to my, my deputy station leader. I had an incredible team and an incredible deputy station leader. Um, and her role as the chef and, and DSL really helped me and then the team get through the whole experience so if she hadn't been on board i wouldn't have done it and she straight away she's like dave tell this story you 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 know you've got the right sort of head and and ability to to write this in a truthful um yet readable way and then i went okay cool let's 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 do it and as i was going i engaged other members of the team on certain technical aspects of it um, the Australian Antarctic program as well were, were pretty helpful where they could be to help um, with different facts and, and providing photos and, and you know, yeah, concurrence with certain things. And, and then we got to the point of I had a, a version of the book that was how I wanted to tell it and gave that out to test readers um, from the team and, and from others who'd been in Antarctica and, um, and, you know, friends and family back here and then we sort of had to change uh, a lot of the, all the names and characters are all, all muddled around. So the story is a hundred percent what happened. The who is, is often altered a little bit to help protect. Uh, and, and certainly I, I didn't want to hold back with the negative mm. aspects of it. You know, 537 days as a team, as, as much as we all worked well as a team to the end, geez, we had our, our moments. <laughs> um, we certainly weren't all friends at the end and we do keep in touch, but it's, it's, you know, the very different relationships with different team members and myself and others. So that whole process was interesting. Um, but I did find that even at this latter stage, sending it out now to members of the team, um, it, it's fairly well received and, and does stand as a good snapshot of what it was like to, to miss out on the pandemic and, and go through all the highs and lows of an Antarctic station for an extended season. So you weren't expecting to do any more than really 365 days. How was that news broken to you, David? And then how did you communicate that? And how was it received by the station team at Davis? Yeah, that's right. So we, we signed up for one year, the 24 of us in the wintering team. And, and you know, for, for years before that, it had pretty much always gone to plan. You go down for your winter a year later, you might come home via a different means, but you'll, you'll get home a year later. Um, so for us on mid just after midwinter's day 2020, so that's 23rd of June, um, two days after we'd done the midwinter swim and the, the celebrations of midwinter and the end being in sight, a few months after that, we were supposed to get the first flights into Davis that would have started ferrying a few of us home early and then the change out would have happened via air. Um, my boss, the, the, the operations manager at the AAD at the time on the video meetings, just said, look, the new icebreaker that's being built in Romania, as you know, it's not going to be ready in time to come and get you guys. It'll, it's been delayed indefinitely. Uh, we've chartered another ship, but I don't think that's going to be able to get to you guys anytime this year. It'll have to come early next year. And we can't get any of the planes that we used back down from North America down to Antarctica. So you guys are going to have to stay until early 2021, which took a, you know, it was, a, it was like a, a sledgehammer to the, the group's morale. And, and we made a decision. I ended up breaking the news to the team and, they took it really well and it, it did take a while for us to fully unpack the impact. And it wasn't until the anniversary of when we got to Antarctica, which was you know, November 20, uh, 2019 and then a year later, November 2020, when we should have been going home. And I think it's one of the best chapters in the book because it's got it's, it's not 
penguins and sunshine and helicopters and glaciers like the the first chapters are. Um, It's right in the depths of winter. We've been there for a year and we had the absolute mundane task of refilling the station's water supply, which which gives them water security for about five years. You only do it every five years. And it was just day after day of, of monotonous, boring Antarctic work, walking up and down a hose or staring at a hose, spraying water into it, into the station tarn. And you have minus 15 to 20 degrees, long hours, shift work. Morale was, it's absolutely, everyone was at each other's throats. So, and there was 24 expert plumbers at the time. I was one of them as well going, well, what if we do this way? And, <laughs> and that was just, oh, and, you know, horrendous experience. And, and that was all based around like at the back of our minds, right then and there, we should have all been going home yep. a and week or two later. Instead, we're doing this. And we had months to go. And mm. there was still a lot of uncertainty about, um, exactly how and when we'd get home and what the world would look like when we did get home. That was that was also sort of the umbrella over the top of the whole thing of is getting home sooner actually a solution to any of the problems we have? So, yeah. Before we leave that, I just want to touch on, I thought that was a fantastic passage in the book about the, the tarn and some of the, the issues you had. Could you describe for our listeners, so my understanding from and nothing further than reading your book, but the the Tanji water supply, it was a glacially formed sort of reservoir, but you resupply it through desalination? Correct. So Davis Station has this um, bizarre situation. It's about 30 k's from the Antarctic Plateau, which has 90% of the world's fresh water. But we're too far away from it to actually access that easily. So what we run is a desalination plant. Now, you can't run that plant all year round. So what they've done it historically at Davis is uh, we refill a small station town. So it's a glacial formed lake, but we've refill it with seawater every five years. And then you can desalinate that. Mm -hmm. Of course, after five years, the extract or the the kind of return pipe fills that up and becomes hypersaline with the the water. So we have to pump that out and then pump in five years worth of fresh seawater. And all in all, I think it was around 117 hours of pumping in total over, um, about a three-week period with a couple of days off here and there because of weather and whatnot. And and a task that if you were doing that on a, on a farm in Australia, pumping that water into it <laughs> from the lower dam to your upper dam, no, piece of cake. Yep. You'd turn on the pump in the morning, let it run all day, um, occasionally refuel it and get on the, with the rest of your farm work while that happens. Down in Antarctica, obviously, when the air's minus 15 degrees, those couplings... Um, were freezing so you have to hit them with a rubber mallet all the time to kind of stop the ice accumulation mm-hmm. even then it was a, an uphill battle to, to keep the hose flowing you'd have blowouts breakages and the minute the hose stopped pumping if it had any water in it you had minutes until that turned into a giant you know, Zupa I loved that description yeah. a 150 <laughs> meter long Zupa <laughs> you know just Which, imagine wielding that thing that's right and, and then we did have a few occasions where we just as hard as we try when we had to pack up rapidly because of a blowout or weather it sort of got in the way, you'd end up with these one or two metre lumps of, of ice in the thing somewhere that we'd have to kind of manage them onto the tray or the, the sled and get it back into the warm store overnight to thaw out and, and melt. And then you start again the next day and it just, just seemed never-ending. Um, and, and it still gives us flashbacks. Anyone that was there uh, would, would never recommend refilling the devastation tarn well you know, it sounds like you've given the next five years worth of expedition as a, a leg up in that respect yeah oh and then the kicker to that is that allegedly <laughs> i've confirmed this but the year before they were supposed to do it and it kind of declined 
they're like, oh, no, nah, like yeah. it'll be all right for another year. So shout out to the team before us. Yeah, thanks it, a lot. It, it sounds like it's going to go in the urgent, not importance <laughs> end of Eisenhower's matrix. We'll leave that to the next team. Um, and so your, your water supply is is desalinated seawater. Did you ever get in? When when I read that passage about a glacially formed reservoir, that sounds like something you'd pay ten bucks for in a in a little five hundred mil bottle. Did you any ever get any of the good stuff uh, while you were down there? Oh, absolutely! And geez, if you could get that stuff back to Australia, um, the the best thing is is when you've got some of the icebergs or the ice cores where you've got um, glacial ice that's been compressed over in some cases hundreds of thousands of years. It compresses all the air inside. So when you can get access to that through cores or if icebergs have flipped and you can get the bergy bits off them, um, you chip that down into a nice little ice cube size thing and drop that in your whiskey. And then the as it melts, the air bubbles all expand. So you get this like sizzling ice cube in your um, in your whiskey. And I sent a photo once to a friend. It was a kind of glacial, a 100,000-year-old kind of glacial ice cube in a in a Negroni and just go like if you could get this to Melbourne, imagine what you could sell sell it for. But um, the the sheer logistics of shipping icebergs from Antarctica to Australia would make the, the price point prohibitive. But uh, mm. yeah, I, I once saw a fountain pen that was inlaid with mammoth ivory that someone had found, Ooh. you know, in a fossil sort of thing. I, I reckon a similar sort of demographic would definitely buy the the glacial ice for their their single malts. Yeah, that's, that's right. So attitudes and behaviours are fractured as you tell people you're going to spend an extended period down at Davis. What can you say or do to try and galvanise the team to just hold it together? Yeah, and look, in a lot of ways, this this sort of links back to some of the stuff in your book. It was really what became, what do you call like a complex problem or a wicked problem that I kind of realized early on there wasn't going to be a lot of solutions. The, the only solution to the 99% of the problems we had was go home. And it was the one thing we couldn't do. So, and, and there was efforts I, I'd often try and, and, and lead the charge on, on social activities or changing up the workplace activities and, and, and focusing on can we do more field work as opposed to maintenance work. And then you get pushback from the, the, head builder and, and plumbers or someone who'd say like, well, if, if we do more field work, then maintenance falls behind. And it became this problem of like, there's no solution to this other than keep going and keep trying. And with organized fun at times, the attendance would be mm. complete. And if it was exciting, everyone would turn up and, and it was great. I think at one occasion, on one occasion, there was you know one guy turned up and he's like, well, was this worth it? I'm like, if it was worth it for you, it was worth it. Because um, I saw that, that became my role, just keep, keep pushing this rather than let everyone just go into their cave and read books and watch Netflix by themselves, um, which funnily enough, the internet wasn't good enough for everyone to do that. It, one or two people could watch Netflix at a time and that, that was it. So there wasn't a solution to, to keeping everyone together, but jobs like even refilling the tarn, that was one of those sort of type two fun activities that horrible at the time. You do not enjoy it, but you look back and go, geez, that was a good team building activity. And is, is, as much as, as we were at each other's 
throats occasionally. When it came to then the, the complicated medical evacuation we had to do around Christmas 2020, I was so impressed by the way everyone just parked all their other differences and came together with that common task and common goal. Right, we've got a medical emergency. We've got to get someone out of here. Yeah. We had to pull aircraft from the, the Chinese and the American programs at distances, you know, across the, the streets, you know, across most of the Southern Hemisphere between Australia and, and Antarctica and took 10 days. Uh, and it was funny actually rereading your story about the, the Pong Su where you spend all these days planning, working 12, 14-hour days and even longer and then you start, you know, we had that, we planned for days to, to get this operation off and then had to execute it. And, but at the time everyone pulled together and, and was able to, you know, pull off one of the most uh, sort of audacious medical evacuations I'd ever done. I want to come back to that medical evacuation because it's a, a gripping uh, sort of passage from your, your book. But before I do, I, I, the point about uh, enforced fun, one of my favourite um, sections in the book uh, deals with ping and pong. And, you know, you talk about this sort of low ebb and, and people on each other's nerves. Can you explain the, the ping and pong story um, for our listeners? Yeah, so the ping and pong story, for some reason, it was not my decision. The ping pong table was in the middle of the lounge. You're pretty short on space up there. So you've got the, the upstairs of the living quarters is a lounge space, with chess boards and a library, a cinema, some computers, and, and it's sort of near the bar, the bar's around the corner, and the bloody ping pong table. And... After dinner, these two cats used to just stand there, kind of padunk, 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 padunk. No emotion, no game involved. They just stood there and just hit the ball back and forth, which was fine. But you kind of felt like, oh, play a game, guys. You know, what are you just sort of mindlessly disrupting everyone else's peace and quiet? And I used to like sitting there with a glass of wine, debriefing different science scientists and stuff. And and yet. At the same time, I felt some of the biggest mistakes I made were in the social space of, of overstepping the mark that my job is to run the station and, and oversee all the operations and safety and that. But you sort of have to let the social side of things go. And I was, I would have loved to have just gone, hey, cool, ping pong, no, not from six o'clock till seven it's o'clock bad. after dinner is the no ping pong hour. But before that, I, I'd made a huge mistake of, of saying, hey, let's, um, you know, I'd got some feedback from a few expeditioners saying, oh, I'm not really happy with people wearing singlets and gym gear in the in the mess at dinner time you've know, got 90 odd people crammed into a pretty small mess and so i'm like yeah no that's a good idea no singlets or gym or dirty gym gear in the mess and then that was met with uproar from the the singlet wearers and and kind of like well i don't i've only got this much time to go to the gym and get a feed and all this stuff and you're like oh, yeah okay so I was very reluctant to to step in and, and intervene with ping and pong <laughs> and it just became part of life that you had to be able to focus in on what you want to do and, and find your space to f have some peace and quiet and accept that you'll never find that. Um, but at the flip side, another little story that's not in the book actually, was I, I used to play guitar as one of my main ways to keep myself sane. And I'd occasionally sneak away from, uh, from, from sort of after dinner drinks on a special occasion so on, a, on a Friday or Saturday night. And there's a little band room annex near the, the LQ and I'd go in there and just play guitar, play a couple of songs and have one last beer and then go to bed. And for one night, the one person just joined in. He's like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, can I join in? And, and he starts joining in. And then another person joins in. And then another person joins in. And before long, everyone's in there playing triangle and all sorts of stuff. And it's like, it's <laughs> supposed to be stationary at a quiet time. 12-piece 12, 12 band here singing Wagon Wheel. But um, it was it was a lot of fun. And that was some of the best memories with it. Mm. You just sort of relax and, and enjoy it. 
Part of the reason I, I love that ping and pong story is because it just sounds like, you know, some form of torture, just this inane, pointless sort of white noise in the background that, that would get on your nerves. But the other thing that I find really interesting, um, you know, we, we clearly teach a lot of leadership and do a lot of work with, with corporate clients. And I always, I like, there's a, a framework by uh, Daniel Goleman, you know, talking about these different leadership styles. And one of them's affiliative, where you put people first, even over the mission. And I remember always thinking that had never happened. You know, it's 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 a useless style of leadership. And then uh, through, well, I mean, we've had the privilege of working with AAD on some of the pre-deployment leadership training and through your stories. I mean, it's a really very real thing um, that, that we need to prioritise harmony, um, particularly in that winter period. And, and it's it's really interesting seeing that coming out in, in your stories. For sure. And, and I always found, I used to describe my own leadership style as very adaptive. And there are some books and stuff written on that style of leadership and then but just being able to switch between the modes and when you could be a social relaxed just anything goes everyone's opinion well let's let's look at all the options kind of leader um the laissez-faire style let that happen if, if that's what's right for the occasion and, and you know in an antarctic station you got to live with everyone so you mm-hmm. do have to kind of give a bit back and, and be open to doing it other people's ways but when it came to then putting on the hat of running our emergency training scenarios or when push came to shove and things got tough and you sort of go, well, there's no time for democracy in a crisis. We're doing it my way. And, it, and if, if that doesn't work, it's on me. Um, or you, you kind of delegate the worry to different people and they'll be oh, but what about this? You're like, that's not your job. Your job's this. He's doing that plan. You're doing this plan. Just forget about that and focus on what you're doing. And you have to be that really, you know, decisive. Yeah, um, directive. Yeah, directive leader. And, and that was something I found. I think I did that well. I think it worked most of the time to be able to go, oh, he's not, now's not a time for discussion. Mm. On the station leader alone time, um, I remember when we did the interview, season three, episode three, Leadership in the Freezer, you talked about it being relentless, that you're trying to do a gym workout or butter your toast and people are coming at you with all sorts of problems. In the Resilient Shield, we talk about the importance of psychological transition from you know, intra-work activities, from work to home, from home to work, and that sets you up for success. In a recent ABC interview, you talk about work-life boundaries as one of your top five takeaways. How can you achieve work-life boundaries or a psychological transition as a leader in an environment like Davis? It's tough. It's, it's really tough. Um, but... Everyone did. That was probably the one thing that, that everyone understood because you'd been a victim of it and you'd been you know, a perpetrator of it in terms of asking questions out of hours. So we did get very clear that once it got past sort of 6 p.m. or after dinner or even a little bit after that, depending on the day of the week and the vibe, that if you've got a work question, you've got to, number one, just at least start with, hey, I've got a work question, do you mind? And then they can say, yeah, that's fine. And I most of the time probably did say yes, but there'd be occasional like, just no, park it. Um, yeah, especially if, yeah, especially if it was going to be a discussion that probably wasn't going to be favorable for what outcome they looked for. And, and there's often then that gaming of if, oh, if I asked Dave in front of other people, he might be more likely mm-hmm. to say yes. And you just have to go, no, nah, that's a discussion for tomorrow. And they're like, oh, well, why not now? And you're like, because it's not now, it's not urgent. It can wait. And it, it was incredibly tough and, and not just tough for me, it's tough for everyone that, that everyone could get questions after hours, be it you know, the plumbers, the builders, the, the mechanics, the met guys, like everyone would get questions. So that's where drawing those lines and sticking to them and backing your team to say no when 
it's inappropriate. And and if I was guilty of that, they'd call me out. I'm like, yeah, fair call. That's um, mm-hmm. that's for tomorrow. You touched on the, the medical evacuation earlier, and I'm really keen to, to come back to that because, um, yeah, clearly it sounds like a, a really key event during your, your time. Um, can we start by describing what sort of medical capability do you have down on the ice? Yeah, so it's, it's pretty limited. It's, well, it's a well-equipped medical centre. There's only the one doctor in the wintertime, and then we train four members of the team as lay surgical assistants, so probably like patrol medic standard for, for your military I, listeners out there. I loved, um, sorry, I, I really love that term, lay surgical assistant. Yep. If someone is performing surgery on me, I do not want them to be lay. I want them to be an expert. And yet that's that's what you're, you're dealing with, cool. a, a plumber yeah. who's had a soldier's five on a scalpel. That's right. And certainly, yeah, with like boat crews, because we'd call them competent crew, but we certainly don't call the surgical assistant <laughs> competent. So, <laughs> but they're incredible. And, and, and look, we had enough time down there. We all got to learn like all sorts of advanced stuff that, as you know, you, you, you don't learn uh, outside of places like the military or, or an Antarctic station with, with you know, just the wintering. And they're really skilled. So they often use the carpenters or chefs um, and trades who are really good with their hands and actually could be pretty handy at suturing or, or assisting the doctor using a power tool on your internal yeah, organs splinting <laughs> a carpet yeah. would be good at splinting the thing for us and certainly in the beginning was that when i sat down with the doctor when covid broke out and we we got the first sort of stories of it we still had 80 odd people on station in summer 2019-20 and we're getting towards the end of summer when covid was was taking hold around the world and I went over to the doctor and we just sort of went through what have we got on station and everything we had was equipped was was equipment and and certainly the, the human side of the training was all around cold injuries and impact like severed arteries because of an ice axe through a leg or the compound fractures and, and frostbite or anything to do with that we had all of that stuff for, in mm. you know, trained for it for days and had all of the equipment ready to go we had one ventilator and we just if we'd had an actual COVID outbreak or a major flu outbreak on station, you're like, yeah, it's just nothing. You know, we, we are not equipped for that because everything we ever trained for was cold injuries. And you're like, bugger, okay. And that that was the shift in the pivot for the Antarctic program. And you're like, right, that's it. No more southbound expeditioners. The ship has to do 14 days at sea before anyone gets off it. And they drew a very hard line very early to just keep those stations safe. And that led to, in a lot of ways, us being, you know, stuck there longer but it was a f- fact of like well actually it's it's the safest thing to do mm. and as much as that's the right decision it still hurts when you're in the team you get told that news but yeah um, it's, it's tough with the benefit of hindsight as we're looking now at omicron and and kind of lots of people have had it and the whole world didn't die i mean you know stan fast says obviously it'd been a, a mm. tragic amount of deaths but remembering back to when it first broke out there there was i, I remember doing crisis management planning with clients thinking that this is going to have a massive mortality rate and, and what if it gets in 
water supplies or, you know, these kind of things, all that kind of speculation. It was it was pretty serious considerations. And given what you've just described about your medical capability, I can only mm. imagine how seriously you, you uh, were taking it down there. Oh, that's right. And then look, they say with the crisis, you know, your moment of recognition is, is so important. And the earlier you can recognise you're in a crisis, the, the better chance you've got of responding correctly. And the AAD and government called it so early for the Antarctic stations. And we're like, what the hell? And they went on to the whole crisis management footing across the division, and which is normally reserved for things like medical evacuations or ship running aground or the ship catching fire. Like that's a crisis that you, you pivot all your resources to this one problem. And they, they called that, you know, I think about January 9th or something. And you know, I don't think the government had officially declared a, a pandemic at that point, but the AAD said, we're going to, we're, we're doing this. Mm. And thank God they did because that pro- possibly um, avoided a lot of other problems and, and certainly led to some pushback at the time from science programs that got cancelled and flights that got cancelled and all sorts of stuff. But you look in hindsight, well, actually, you know, if they had an outbreak at a station, it would have been at the time pretty catastrophic because we just didn't know anything about the, the virus. And what would be the effect of losing someone from the team? I know the AAD has had some um, fatalities in the past. Can you can you reflect on on that and the potential impacts on a station of, of actually losing one of your own in that circumstance? Yeah, I mean, it would be absolutely devastating. And, and you know, thankful that that never happened um, during my time, which would have been, you know, because ordinarily, if that does happen, you, you've got to be able to get the, the person or the, the, the body out of there and, and those dramatically affected by it would be able to rotate out as well and you get some fresh air into the team with some new people that might help the dynamic. But um, it would be one of those scenarios that you just don't wish on, on anyone. But as the, as the station leader and the doctor, we, we did have plans for that stuff and there's, there's kits and procedures down there um, for those eventualities because unfortunately even just just through natural causes um, you know we're not uh, what's the quote in your book from Julius Caesar or whoever it was about you know we're not oh, the Marcus Aurelius we're all going to end up the worm food yeah yeah that's that's right so um, you, you kind of have to be ready for that but you, you just hope it doesn't happen and what about the fire on the vessel coming home? I mean, the last hurrah, you'd think, oh, geez, just a couple of days out, we're, we're home and hosed. How did that manifest itself and what was the response from your team, but also the ship's crew? Yeah, it was just like unbelievable that that's how it all ended. Um, we, we, we'd spent, because after Davis, so they came in, the ship came and picked us up from Davis and we then went across to Mawson Station and we couldn't get close to the 90 nautical miles. So that's the whole resupply via air, which took, I think, about two weeks of just flying like internal loads in a Squirrel B3. They got four sorties a day. At yeah, most. I was going to say that the internal oh. capacity of a Squirrel B3 is what? It's nothing. A, a small it was, handbag. That's right. If, if they'd been able to get a bit closer, we could have slung cage pallets. But um, yeah, internal. Anyway, so we had two weeks of sitting there kind of de-stuffing 20-foot containers into internal loads on the choppers and getting pretty sick of that. So finally, they're like, okay, we're done with that. They've got enough food and fuel for the... Or the they had enough fuel left over. But um, they put everything ashore, everyone ashore. We're done. We're turning. We'll be in Hobart in 12 days. Call your families. Tell your friends. You know, get ScoMo <laughs> ready. Let's... <laughs> Okay, we're, we're, we're going to be in Hobart on this date, probably, and that's it. And so I went back to my cabin and started restuffing all your gear and you go, cool, I'm going to put my, my Antarctic gear kind of in that bag and start to think about getting home. And you've got to lash everything down. Crossing the Southern Ocean is not a 
uh, not an easy journey the best of time. So you're lashing everything down and packing everything away for this journey home. And mentally you're like, cool, we're done. And to then just wake up if to a fire alarm and the captain just clear as day over the radio in, uh, in my memory as well, just fire, 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 fire in the engine room, not a drill, not a drill. And you wake up pitch black in the cabin or dim emergency lighting. Mm. You can smell smoke, you can taste it. And you, and then you come out of your cabin you've, and you've got a grow. You've got your Antarctic survival bag, which has got all your gear and equipment to kind of, if you had to go and make a camp on Heard Island, you'd be all right. You've then got a bloody immersion suit that's another sort of five odd kilos of and bulky. Um, you're trying to put your jacket on. My boots were by that point, you know, a year and a half old. So they were falling apart and held you with duct tape. And you, you, and, and you come out of your cabin and everyone's just in the same disheveled state of gear and bags and equipment. And you get down to the forecastle, which was a semi-enclosed space that had holes in it where the anchor chains went out. So it was still getting pretty good cold breeze from the Southern Ocean. And we stood there for six hours while the crew fought the fire. A number of the AAD team were involved in fighting the fire too to, to just contain it um, and boundary cooling and everything as you know on ships become really important. It just consumed numbers of people to get on hoses and there were some really, really brave actions of a number of crew and, and expeditioners to get the fire under control. And then we're like, well, can we get the other engines going? And it was this case of, well, we don't know yet. It might've burnt out all of the electronics or it might have had a uh, bigger impact on the control system so we don't know and where we're sitting you know beam on to, to six meter swell mm -hmm. so you're rolling nearly 30 degrees in the ship as well and there was weather coming in if we hadn't been able to get going there was some much bigger seas bearing down on us and you're just standing there going well all right what's the lifeboats and sailing to herd island gonna look like and you know you I, you know, it's no one, no one alive knows what it was like to be on the James Caird sailing to, to South Georgia. But at, at the time, I'm like, that won't be, it'll be a modern day version <laughs> of that. Mm, yep. um, trying to get, get to Heard Island, which, which was the nearest land, but by no means, there's no city or anything there. There's a few old whaling sheds that might have been better than being on a ship. But eventually they, they did get the ship going and, and we limped home to Fremantle. But as I talk about in the book, it was the, the change between being just a passenger catching a ride home to then after that everyone was in a very different emotional state and, mm. and very much aware of the the fight or flight response that we'd all had in, to one degree or another in the in the bowels of that ship and and i started talking to, to different members of the team about it and though the, the aad did a great job trying to help us but at the same time we still had this unfolding crisis we're still in the middle of a crisis mm. on, and the, we had patchy wi-fi and satellite phones was about as good as we could do. So they're trying to support us. And yet actually the best way to support us was just we'll support each other on the ship. Once we get home, you can you can, can do everything else. And that was that was tough, but also brought out you know some of the some incredible um some incredible actions and you know bravery from people. And what about for yourself personally? I mean you've come from a position where Absolutely everything stops with you. You're making decisions, you're leading uh, throughout this entire extended period and all the ups and downs that we've spoken about. And now you're, from the sounds of things, the, the I'm trying to think of a more politically correct, you're, you're a bit of a spare uh, wheel while this, this crisis is unfolding. Um, how did that hit you from, from going to those uh, extremes? Yeah, for sure. And, and it's not my quote, but another station leader once said, there's nothing more useless than another station leader. So <laughs> it's like officers, you know, one's enough. Yeah. <laughs> Arguably too much in, in a lot yeah, of circumstances. That's right. So um, look, when the, the fire, when the alarm started ringing and we're going to the folks hall, I could hear the, the captain and the voyage leader and deputy voyage leader 
uh, their conversations and, and their frame of mind and the unknowns about what was going on, I did for one second think, well, it's kind of kind of glad I'm not in charge of this one. <laughs> I've had my had my emergency with the the medical evacuation and stuff, um, which I was probably more in control of. You, you had a bit more control over that than um, the, the fire, but very quickly then just went, okay, well, what can I do to help out here? And the best thing was just find individuals that, that weren't coping, um, chat to them, help them and be a, a point of mm. contact for members of my team or, or others that to keep to, cause I knew I'd been in the voyage leaders position and I'm like the last thing he needs is people asking him questions. So myself and, and Matt, who was the outgoing station leader from Mawson, we started just trying to act as a bit of a unofficial buffer. So if mm, there's question, awesome. we stay informed of what was happening. And if people had questions, they could come to us before they annoyed the voyage leader, who was happy to help them as well, mm. but it just helped him a bit. And then um, helping the sitting at the table, we, we convened what they call the incident management team on the ship, which is a bit of an ad hoc, but a, a formal structure where you've got your voyage management and the captain and others involved. And we sat on that table and helped out where we could, as, as well as a number of members from my team who rose to the occasion to, to form kind of auxiliary fire teams and additional support roles when, you know, we've been, at, we've been away for over a year and a bit and have by every right, they could have just sat back and, and watched, but yeah. they, they happily stood up and stepped up. Yeah, yeah, which was really impressive and, and sort of tantamount to the, the character of the people at the Antarctic program. Um, either attracts or builds uh, mm. while they're down there. Churchill famously said, never waste a good crisis, but it sounds like you were happy to waste that one. <laughs> Actually, the, the fire is one thing, but I could think of nothing more horrific, having been in the Southern Ocean as a ship without any propulsion in those seas. That must have been terrifying. Yeah, it wasn't great. Um, it was, it, and like that ship rolled quite a lot as well. I don't know if you Google MPV Everest or have a look at the photos in my book or on my website, you can see it. It's got the helipad kind of attached to the front top of the bridge, which mm. creates this like top heavy center of gravity thing. Yeah. Center of gravity, which I don't think helps it in, in giant swells and the, the wavelength of the swells in the Southern Ocean as well. It probably wasn't helping it. And you, you just had to walk around constantly half falling over and trying to lean into the, um, the pitch sometimes. But then I, I did a voyage this summer on a, on a um, cargo vessel, the Happy Dragon, which is a 150 metre cargo ship. Mm. And that was, and obviously with waves, you always want to face the bow into the waves or, or have them at least you know, perpendicular. And they would say, no, actually, sometimes that can be a problem because on the longer cargo ship, as you're cresting the waves, it pulls the prop out of the water. Yeah. And yeah, it can create a bending moment and stuff. And you're like, geez. You know, being a ship captain, you're like, I thought you just stood around with a cup of tea and set the compass heading, but mm. uh, there's a lot of lot more to work out. <laughs> yeah, all ahead, three quarters, steam, <laughs> to right. start it. Yeah. Say cool things like that. Yeah. Um, you spoke about midwinter uh, before. Really interested in in the, I guess, the significance of this. Can you you provide a bit of um, background on midwinter and particularly how you commemorate that? Yeah, it's coming up in a couple of days actually, and it's it it's the most historical moment of the of the season because very you know a lot of people can visit Antarctica in the summertime, but very few get the the privilege of wintering over, and mm. it's such a different experience than a summer it's it's pitch dark for davis you know 23 hours a day you get a dwim twilight for an hour you you 
seasonal affective disorder they call it you're Mm. moping around it's hard to stay motivated there's a long way to go but the minute you're through midwinter the days get longer but you know by 14 minutes a day there's more sunshine and and the end becomes in sight and we sit down for this very formal dinner and you know the governor general sends a message the, the minister or the prime minister will send messages you get messages from celebrities you send out invitations all around the world and see who replies. And, and 2020 was a great one because everyone was stuck at home in lockdowns or whatnot. So we, we got some great video replies and it creates this atmosphere of, okay, you have now joined the club of, of winterers and that's it. And yet you don't get given your winter medallion then and there, they, they, you get that later, but that's when you earn it, when you sit down on that, that day in the middle of winter and you know, remember what, what it was like you know, 100 years ago when they sat down and, and commemorated those nights as well. And of course, the midwinter swim. There's an awesome image in your book of of, of you really sucking it up. I, I love Wim Hof's stuff. I, I sort of get into that, but but that's taking it to the next level, isn't it? Yeah, that was. I mean, they say it's not a tradition, but it very much is an unofficial tradition to to go for a swim at midwinter. You have to cut a hole in the ice. You know, it's nearly two meters thick at that point as well. So you have to have someone that stands there stirring it so it doesn't refreeze <laughs> with you um, in it. <laughs> Yeah, and then I was always worried that, that a seal or something would come up under it. So, mm. you, um, you know, they see a hole in the ice, like, Ooh, I can get some air. Um, and that has happened in, in different years. And you, you, most of the team jumped in and it was this great sort of event to just go, all right, we've, we've now all done the stupidest thing you can do, which is go swimming in Antarctica in the middle of winter. It's minus 20 degrees in the air, minus two in the water. Getting out by far colder than getting in once you're, you're wet and standing there while the... Um, the field training officer undoes the safety line and yeah, and then you try and warm, you just, you cannot warm up for hours. I don't think I felt my toes for, for days. Mm. There's an awesome picture in, in the book. The symmetry, the way that the holes cut in the ice looks amazing. How do they, how do they cut that? We cut it with a with an auger on a uh, on a skid steer, kind of little bobcat thing. We just uh, put a, what was a one meter auger on that and drilled four holes that kind of lined up. The other way to do it is to, to do it with chainsaws. And I kind of always, very, I mean, in the mechanics, we talked about it as well. And we're like, well, chainsaws was technically the more approved method. And we were like, well, honestly, standing around with chainsaws, like on your knees, trying to mm. cut through ice, this, the safety <laughs> parameters around that were like, if we just put the auger on a little, Bobcat, yeah, that might be safer. But you'd need if the that bobcat, carpenter. If you, yeah, if you break you through and the bobcat sinks, you then can't get out. I mean, you just have to, you, you've risk managed and work out a plan and drill your hole. There'll be plenty of people listening that are really interested in going down south and joining an expedition. What makes a good expeditioner? Ooh, understand your own motivation is, is the number one key of go down there for the right reasons um, and also have a sense of it. And that, for me, would be to have a sense of adventure that uh, there's all the things that, that are on the brochure and you'll get to do a lot of those. You'll get to see penguins and seals and wildlife and fly or, or sail down there on the ships and all of that's incredible, but that's the brochure. Mm. The realities of it are, are much tougher and harder to deal with. But if you if you want that adventure, it'll, it'll deliver it in spades. It's not a job per se. Um, once you're down there, it's, it's a lifestyle and... That would be the, the adaptability and a, and a kind of social self-awareness mm. would be very key that, uh, to group harmony and individual success as well. I think those those sort of highlights that you mentioned, while clearly it's not every day, as you said, I think before is, is penguins and 
bloody Southern Lights or whatever. But there must be some incredible moments. I look back on my military career and I, I refer to these things as SAS moments, SAS moments, where it doesn't matter how rich you are, doesn't matter, you know, you will never get an opportunity outside that specific context to, I don't know, sit on a, the side of a mountain overlooking the, the sort of Hindu Kush or, you know, fly helicopters down the Brisbane River and assault the, the casino. Um, clearly, your book is full of some of these. What ones really stick out into your mind as these AAD moments that you, you so, so cherish? I used to call them hashtag Antarctica moments. And, <laughs> and, and honestly, you look out the window and every, almost every day, if there's not a blizzard, I had one that um, actually is, it's not in the book, but so I'll tell it on the podcast. Um, we'd been down to the Indian station. This is in the first summer. So about a, a one hour flight away down to the Indian station. We took a bunch of scientists down there for a, a symposium with the Russians, Chinese and, and Indians. And that, that story is in the book. But on the way back, we were a bit later than we, we were intending to be. So getting towards sort of eight or nine o'clock at night, probably even a, possibly a bit later because uh, we were running on these different time zones down there. So the sun's in this, it's hitting its sunset mode. It's not going to set because it's summer, but you've got this like orange light, just all 360 degrees around you. We're flying back um, along the, the, the edge of a, of a number of glaciers in between the, the Larsman Hills where um, the... Sorry, yeah, the, the Indian stations are, and then Dave is up in the Westfold Hills. And we're flying along this, these ice cliffs. And because it was, it'd been such a hot day, the glaciers are melting on the top, just forming these waterfalls that are now cascading, not always off the edge of the, the glacial tongues as well, but sort of through it. And so you've got these jets of water spurting out the side of the glacier, this sunset and this dead still water. And you're flying along in this helicopter, just going like, oh, hashtag Antarctica right there. <laughs> and those moments, you, you just, and, and the great thing is you you can't buy those moments. Um, you, 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 can, you can travel to Antarctica on tourist ships and all sorts of stuff, but some of those moments, you know, like that, those conditions right then and there, yeah. you may not get to see ever again. And, and I really pinched myself at times to think that, Jesus, is my job um, to be here right now. And, and that's an incredible, and I've always thought, jobs like that in the past too that you know don't pay to go and do something i get someone to pay you to do it <laughs> that's much cleverer We asked you in February 2021 what was the first thing you were going to do when you came back and after hugs or fist bumps or whatever we were doing back then, you said, I want to go and get a coffee, go for a walk and not be bothered by anyone. What did you do when you first get back? Yeah, well, we had, because we came back to Fremantle, I still had a a night and a a morning of kind of work-ish stuff to do there. So I, I... as much as I was back in Australia and I did go and get a coffee and walk in some green grass um, and did get down to the beach to stand in some sand, it wasn't the same. It wasn't until I got back to Melbourne and came home and just put everything away, put my phone and everything away and just just went out and bare feet and walked around Albert Park Lake near my house in Melbourne and stood in the grass and looked back at the city that I'd sort of longed for and and just, just 
by myself for a while reflecting on everything that I'd been through and, and everything that had led me to, to, to be sitting there that particular day and, and what I was pretty worried about what the world was going to be like. And I'd already had a pretty rude shock in at Perth airport with how crowded it was. Mm. Um, and I'm like, geez, that, that I never had problems with crowds after other trips. And, and this one, I, and most of my team have said the same thing. Perth airport was pretty rough on us. Um, Perth airport's pretty rough yeah. at the best of times. In yeah. Fairness. yeah, that's right. And I have and over the next day or so, I very, but the first time I went to a cafe, I got carried by someone that I just wandered in and they're like, excuse me, there's already four people in here. And I'm like, well, you know, what's, and then you realize there's a giant sign that says your maximum occupancy, four people. You're like, oh, that stuff. I was so out of touch and no one knew that, or this, you know, why is this guy an idiot? And you're like, well, sorry, I'm new to this. And at that point, everyone had a year of it. Yeah. How are you new to this? Sort of asking, have you been on a different planet? That's like, I remember being so disappointed. The first avocado I had, I was so disappointed as well. It was just not quite ripe. And I'm like, ah, a year and a half without avocados and the first one you get and it's not good. But um, And seeing my, my nieces and that was was just amazing to, to sort of reconnect and see how much they'd grown and, and catch up with, with my friends and family as, mm-hmm. as well about what they'd been through. And, and I'd forgotten that as tough as everything we went through, Melbourne in particular was pretty scarred mm-hmm. and it had a, a very rough time of 2020. Nearly had 537 days of COVID in Victoria. <laughs> <Yeah>. Lockdown. <laughs> um. So on, on the subject of adjustments, Mark Wales talks about this in his book, Survivor, when he comes back from Afghanistan, he just looks at people and they just don't get it, I think is the quote he uses. How long did that take for things to normalise? Look, I think longer than, far longer than I expected. Um, you know, it's over a year since I got back, uh, including I did go back to Antarctica in that time, so it's kind of reset it. But uh only very recently have I started to feel really back to normal and comfortable and happy to, to go out and, and kind of be my old self. Mm. And that's not uncommon for, for everyone else around who's, who's had a, a rough time of lockdown, but it was hard to explain what I'd been through. And that helped with it. Just the book helped a lot just to explain it to my family mm. um, and, and a few friends that just didn't get it. And then you could just go, hey, just read this chapter. And they're like, oh man, you're like, yeah, it was pretty rough. So that that helped me help others understand what I'd been through and it was a big motivation to get the story out there. Mm. Um, but it's changed me in, in a way. And that's what I talk about in, in the back of the book with um, catching up with D- Dave Sabin. So one of the platoon from Long Tan and I went and caught up with him for, for scones and coffee <laughs> uh, and stories the other day. And, and it's a weird comparison that it's nothing like nothing I went through was the same as what he did and, and the guys uh, from 6RAR but the, the returning to Australia part of it and how do you grapple with geez how do I explain what I just went through and how do I keep in touch with people that mm. aren't really keen on keeping in touch and and unpacking that when you're trying to also get back to life and, and find a job and mm. do this other stuff so that was a unexpected uh, parallel that I had never, never really thought about until I caught up with Dave. Does the, does the team get psychologically debriefed when you get back? Yep, absolutely. Similar to the Army debriefs. Uh, in fact, the, the, the main psych at the AAD is an ex-Army psych and the mm. Army psychs used to do it, I think, up until not that long ago. Mm. Um, and and those, those support services are available. But as, as you know, and everyone does these days, it's admitting that you need a bit of help is the hardest step. And then once mm. you you are getting a bit of help and having a chat to somebody, you go, geez, I needed that. And that's, um, it's a hard one. It's a contract workforce. So 
there's a few people that have gone back and are wintering again already. And there are others that have had bits to do with the program, like myself, just round trips in the summer. So they keep in touch, but there's there's others that can slip through the cracks if Mm -hmm. they're not careful. I I can't remember if I I said this last time we spoke on this, but um, there's a movie called The Odd Angry Shot, which is a a wonderful Graham Kennedy and Brian Brown, old Vietnam SAS sort of flick. Um, and there's a very poignant scene at the end where they go through all these trials and they have these, you know, experiences and they lose friends and they're, you know, grown up and all this sort of rite of passage stuff. And they come home and they go for their first beer, almost this real climax of can't wait to get back and have a beer in, in Australia. And, um, you know, the bartender asks, oh, are you back from Vietnam? And they sort of, yeah, no, and sort of downplay it. And, and it's that real anti-climax of, you know, you've gone through this life-changing sort of experience and you come back to the real world and everyone's been doing their own stuff, quite rightly. And and it's a really funny adjustment. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I use that word anti-climax. I, I felt that a couple of times coming back from trips uh, where, I don't know, you expect, I don't know, that, that everyone else has had this profound experience that you've had. Um, but, of course, they've, they've had their own stuff and... and it just, yeah, it, uh, it sort of um, just goes by the wayside. For sure, yeah. Mm. What's next for you, David? Uh, well, launching the book has been its, its own wild ride and, you know, running workshops for, for different corporates and, and, you know, emerging leaders. I think that's the main mm. thing for me is that it, it was, I always wanted a leadership challenge like this and until I had it. <laughs> uh, and that creates a whole range of other um, emotions. But I made a conscious decision when it was tough to go, okay, make the most of this because this is so unique and so challenging. So for me, it became learning as much as I can about being in that situation. So my goal now is to try and teach others about those experiences and what I got right and what I got wrong and what they can learn from it. And that's corporates, charities, schools, you know, law enforcement, um, defense, whoever. And I've enjoyed that. I know you guys work in a similar space and, it's you get a lot out of it yourself mm. by telling your story and, and helping others. And, you know, it helps you realize like, Oh, well, I've actually got some, some good experience here. And then you learn from the, the teams and, and the junior leaders and, and others out there. So that's why that's what I'm doing at the moment. I love it and, and hope that kind of carries on as, as long as I can milk it. Yeah. Look, and, and to your point earlier, I think, you know, there's some wonderful theory out there about leadership and it can provide great frameworks, but um, it doesn't necessarily survive contact with the real world and having someone with your depth of experience to say, well, you know, this is a good start point, but it's a messy, complex, you know, you've got to bumble, mumble, sort of work your way through it uh, could be really useful. Um, how can people get in touch with you if they, they do want to, to leverage off that incredible experience that you've got in leadership development? Yeah, so just jump on my website, www.davidnoff.com. Uh, follow the book's Instagram account at 537 Days of Winter. And uh, of course, by the buy the book, listen to the podcast, and I'm happy to chat to and work with uh, work with anyone out there that's that's interested. Awesome. You can also find David on Instagram and LinkedIn, and we'll put the links in the show notes. David, before we leave, I cannot remember if we asked last time, but a question we often like to ask our guests are, what is your power song? Did we ask you that last time? We didn't. My, my go-to like not karaoke song, but if, if someone gives me a guitar at a party and says, Hey, you play guitar. I play free fallen by um, mm, Tom Petty. Yeah. Tom Petty. And I love that. A is a, as a, how do you know a skydiver's on your podcast? He's got to mention it. So as a skydiver, <laughs> you have to you know, sing that. And it always just pitches just go, oh, yeah, jump out playing free fallen. And that, that's my go-to 
guitar song. I love that. And is there a song that evokes memories of, of being on the ice? I mean, on, on a couple of our deployments, there's been sort of songs that whenever I hear them, I go straight back to, to a moment of that. Is, do you have similar sort of musical uh, sort of uh, touchstones from your, your time down there? Absolutely. Uh, Wagon Wheel by Darius Rucker. We, that was sung at like the... <laughs> It was an open mic night that we we had one of the pilots dress up as kind of a David Lee Roth style MC and he emceed said that, which was you know, just hilarious. And um, if that was played, then at the end of any other band night or any night in the bar or any time, even just on, on Kitchen Duty or Slushy, that would come on every playlist and it just... Yeah, in the back of your mind, you so yeah, wagon wheel. <laughs> I love it. Well, we'll we'll chuck a, a bit of Tom Petty and and a bit of Darius Rucker onto the Unforgiving sixty playlist on Spotify. On Spotify, but it's on there. Free Fallen by Tom Petty on the Unforgiving sixty playlist on Spotify. It is there now. Wow. And we'll, we'll chuck efficient. wagon wheel on as well. Um, David, thank you. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. You're in a bit of a whirlwind at the moment. I think we've caught you between TV appearances. Um, you're certainly a, per, uh, a man in demand um, on the back of your new book, and rightly so. Um, 537 Days of Winter will provide all the links, as Tim mentioned before. But really want to thank you for your time this morning. Perfect, and my pleasure being on again. Thanks, guys, and best of luck with everything you guys are up to as well. Cheers, Cheers Dad. Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60.